Sean Gregory writes in Time Magazine this last week, he has an interesting article titled, Urban Meyer, No Relation to Me, um, and the Cult of the Coach. The cult of personality that surrounds coaches, an exalted status that drives their lavish contracts, and he notes that they're up 55%, average contract is up 55% in the last six seasons. From one million to one point five million. Wouldn't you like to have those kind of raises? And often this cult of the coach provides a, a power, placing them in many people's eyes and even in their own sometimes above the law. Because people want a winner. Now I realize in saying that some of you Ohio State fans, are there any here? Yeah, there's no here. If they were, they'd be loud, I'm sure, um, are excited about this. But I just read that as a kind of illustration of how in the hearts of people, we, we long for a leader, a coach, a CEO, a chairperson, someone who can take and move things forward, sometimes turn things around and bring about the kind of differences that will make a difference in our lives and the lives of others. And Christmas is essentially the announcement that a new king has been born. The anointed one. The leader that people had been longing for when they took this Passover meal and they would year to year tell the story again of the Exodus. This anointed one. The leader has arrived. The king, the hope of the world, has come to make a difference. A better place. And this kingdom has come to earth, and the long wait, this long, long wait is over. That was the hope of Israel. Expectantly, after waiting more than a millennium, they dared to believe that earth, in some sense, was coming under new management. That there was a new ruler, a new leader, a new government would be established. Things would be different in their world, even in their own little lives. Now, we're all familiar, again, with that kind of hope, because I can just kind of illustrate this for you again through sports and through politics because i just want you to get you know connected a little bit with what was going on in their world and their time as they waited for this leader they were waiting for one who would come and bring about a whole new track record for them as a nation if you take sports it's just filled with these kind of examples think of how excited a city becomes when a new star player has been signed to one of the athletic teams the fans are filled with hopes. The sportscasters rave. We even go pick up some of these stars in the coaches with them and players in, in, in some kind of vehicles right at the airport, right? The announcement is made, for instance. The Vikings have taken Christian Ponder in the first round, and we begin to think, finally, maybe things could turn around. we got a quarterback. The Timberwolves are excited because they have a potential star in Ricky Rubio. Maybe he could make the difference. Remember last year when the Twins, um, all the excitement and enthusiasm around the signing of this Japanese batting champion? What was his name? Anybody remember even now? But even more than that, when a struggling franchise actually, um, after months and sometimes even years, it could be that the the management, you know, is inept and they appoint then a new coach and a, and a general manager, especially if he comes with some kind of reputation like an Urban Meyer for turning things around. 
and getting the club on a winning streak and back into the playoffs. Excitement abounds. Things could really change. You just read the headlines. We've got them today. Proven winner coach Rick Edelman takes on the challenge of the Timberwolves. Winning coach Mike Yao, Yo, really, steps in to lead Minnesota Wild. Minnesota shows faith in Jerry Kill. And there's this expectation, this anticipation. There's a hope that maybe this guy, this leader, will be the one. That doesn't just happen in sports franchise. So some of you maybe not sports oriented. This happens with entire countries. They exhibit this whole, they go through the same kind of cycles. If you look at Libya, here's a, a country um, in all kinds of turmoil. And finally, Qaddafi's gone. And there's this hope that lays before them. You think of Egypt. It was only a few months back when Mubarak was ousted from his government. And then people were excited about that change. And now there's some frustration beginning to appear. Just three years ago. When Barack Obama, he came on a campaign of hope and there are some who continue to hope and there's some who are, you know, it's just polarized. It just happens all the time, whether it's a country, whether it's a sports franchise, when a regime is overturned and a new leader comes to power, there comes with it this elation, this dancing kind of in the streets, this, this sense where people are enthused because of what could be. And whether a country or a political leader, whether a sports team with a sports star and a superstar, Sometimes within months and sometimes even weeks, all that hope can turn to disappointment. When the team doesn't magically begin winning trophies and they don't make the playoffs, they're not bound for a bowl game or, or they make the Frozen Four or selected the, the Sweet 16, can't even make the NIT. Another cycle begins and soon new regimes, they also sputter. And the joyful crowds that were once so enthused now are frustrated and they become angry and people pitch tents in squares. And people hold signs as they protest. And political analysts all around feed the frenzy. And yet, although frustrated, the cycle begins and people begin to hope. Maybe one day someone will come and sort this all out. Maybe someday a leader will turn things around and produce a winner. In some case, hope so disappoints that we lose faith. We just lose faith, you give up. But in some, in spite of the losses and disappointments and years of suffering, some continue to hope. And we keep the faith. And you know what we call those people? Viking fans. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, the real dry heart, you know, we call them Cub fans. Um, Okay, let's get back to Christmas. You see how that cycle and how that builds of this sense of hope and this anticipation and then the sense of despair or the sense of disappointment when things don't happen. And if you put this in perspective, thinking of Christmas, this is exactly how the world was at the time of Christ, throughout the world, waiting for a ruler to come. This really is the story of the people of Israel more than anything, waiting for the announcement of the birth of the king who was to follow the great King David. They were hoping and they were waiting for a promised Messiah, the rightful king who would put the world right. It's really the long story of Israel. And you think about Israel, it had its high point. So I want to kind of share with you the story of Israel this morning. They, they had a sense that they had their share of wins. I would say throughout their history, they had a taste of victory. 
At one point, God came and he came to a man named Abraham and he said to Abraham, I want to take you and I want to start with you, a family that will bless the entire world. That was a big win. God selects one and out of them come a people and patriarchs start to to, um, come after them. And eventually, though, they come on hard times and they move into Egypt. They, They find that in some ways they are able to eat there in Egypt and eventually they become slaves and the whole thing goes down again. And at a certain point, they're weeping and crying. And then God shows up through Moses. And Moses, through this Exodus experience, has the ability through the power of God to defeat this incredible power called Egypt. And they, they leave that, that, that city as, as freed slaves and go through this water, which is this incredible miracle of God making a way when there seems to be no way. And from there it moves, just in a sense, um, from what I call their World Series Super Bowl victory. They move into a time where they set on the land and things kind of head a little bit south for a while. But then there's another high point, another win, another great taste of victory. Because now God comes through this king, this king named David. And then through David, uh, the nation comes to prominence throughout the world. During the time of David and Solomon, I would almost compare it to the reign of Israel as almost like franchise winners. They were perennial winners year after year. They were now on top of the world as the power to be looked at. And yet there were many low points. They had their high points through Abraham, through Moses, through David. And yet they had their low points, their big losses, what I call years of being bottom feeders. You know, those who are year after year in the lost column. In fact, they actually had a thousand-year drought. Did you know that? They went a millennium um, as last place favorites. After the big exodus win, they wandered in the desert for some 80 years, longing to settle in a land that God had promised. And after settling in the promised land, they lost their way again. And it's the time of the judges, it says that people did right in their own eyes. And, and for, for short periods of time, very short period of time, they would have this victory and then they would move into a season of, of extended loss. And they got ransacked there that time by every surrounding nation. And in that time, they started calling out for God to have a leader, not just a leader who would be a judge who were, he would, in a sense, have God rule through them. But they wanted a leader like the other kings around them, and they wanted a king. And then finally, through Saul, there was this rise as the nation of Israel through Saul began to grow. And then eventually, through David, who was a man after God's own heart, filled with the Holy Spirit, the kingdom reaches its zenith, its high point. And then they go back into decline. As one king after another king doesn't follow God. There's a few bright spots along the way, but eventually it gets so bad that God actually has another nation come in, Babylon, cart them off as slaves, has rings kind of put in their noses, and they leave, and they go to this place where they are in exile. They have a bright spot again for a moment as as one leader Cyrus finally frees them and they come back and they build a temple that's really nothing like the temple that it was back in David's day. Because when they build it, some of the people who remember what it was like are crying while those who are young and new are just excited because they've been told this new work of God is starting. And as they go into that time after that exile for another years, they go into a time where God becomes completely silent. God stops speaking. Think about it, 600 years of silence. Many still hope, though. Many kept the faith. Some lost hope. They gave up the faith. For nearly a millennium, 
Israel's in a free fall. And I want to share with you just if you look at a slide. And this is an easy way for those of you, if you want to do this, is like little classroom lessons or just a moment. OK, and it gives you a little history. And I just rounded numbers out. Abraham and his family about year 2000 before Christ. Fifteen hundred is about Moses and the Exodus. One thousand is about David in the, in the reign of this incredible kingdom. It's reaching its zenith. It's growing this direction. And then after thousand, if you could, it would really actually go down. And you would see it now begin to move to 500. And then from 500 to, to the birth of Christ in that period is, is silence. Really 600 years. There's, there's hardly anything said. You know, you think about that as a nation, and as I think about this hope, it's summed up when we read this passage of Scripture, because now, rather than taking a group of people and their hope, which has been in free fall for over a millennium, and now these last 600 years of it, it's God is silent, and these people continue to hope, it, it gets summed up in the experience of two people. Lots of different individuals, you could see this, but just if you would follow along with me, how these two people hoped and waited and waited and waited and still believed. Look at this man named Simeon, found in, chap- in, in Luke. Luke chapter 2, verse 25. In Jerusalem at the time, there was a man, Simeon by name, a good man. A man who lived in prayerful expectancy for the help for Israel, of help for Israel. And the Holy Spirit was on him. And, and just note all the references to the Holy Spirit. Because I think the kind of weight and the hope like he had to do, you really have to be someone who is in God's spirit. Bowed up by his spirit. And the Holy Spirit was on him. The Holy Spirit had shown him that he would see the Messiah of God before he died. And led by the spirit, he entered the temple. And as the parents of the child, Jesus brought him in to carry out the rituals of the law. This is about eight days after Christ has been born. Simeon took him into his arms and blessed God. God, you can now release your servant. Release me in peace as you promised. With my own eyes, I have seen your salvation. It's now out in the open for everyone to see a God revealing light to the non-Jewish nations of the glory of your people, Israel. Jesus, father and mother, look at this. Verse 33, we're speechless with surprise at these words. Once again, they see signs of God's activity in a time of great silence. And Simeon went on to bless them and said to Mary, his mother, the child marks both the failure and the recovery of many in Israel, a figure misunderstood and contradicted, the pain of a sword thrust through you, but the rejection will force honesty as God reveals who they really are. And then you look at another who is hoping, a faith-keeping person, a person who has waited and waited. Verse 36, Anna the prophet was also there. A daughter of Phanuel from the tribe of Asher. She was by now a very old woman. She had been married seven years and a widow for 84. She never left the temple area, worshiping night and day with her fastings and prayer. At the very time Simeon was praying, she showed up, broke into an anthem of praise to God, talked about the child to all who were waiting expectantly for the freeing of Jerusalem. You see, you see, this wasn't just a national thing. This wasn't something that, that went on from, from the year 1000 and kept going on to the exile and kept going on for those 600 years of silence. It wasn't just a national thing. There were individuals like you, like the Annas and Simeons and others who were saying, God, you made a promise. You said this to me. You have shared with me 
through your word. That you are going to do something or do this or or you're going to act in such a way. And so if you catch this, here she is waiting. You know, we sing songs like we will at the end of the service. Come thou long expected Jesus. With no idea of what that really means when you compare it to someone like Anna. Think of it. It says here in the word of God, she was a very old woman. So let's get kind of down to what that means. She was married seven years, had seven years of a marriage, and then was a widow for 84. Probably married around 15 years of age, 14, 16, somewhere in that age. So Anna was somewhere around 105 years of age. How many of you this morning have waited on God that long? Raise your hand. I bet the people, when they looked at her and they saw her come in day after day, because it says she never left the temple area, she worshipped night and day, she fasted and prayed for probably some 80 plus years is what I'm guessing. I bet you people looked at her and said, there's crazy Anna again. Crazy Anna, she just believes. And so she, she told us that God showed up in a dream or somehow an angel spoke to her, somehow in God's word. Some way, somehow, God said, you know what? At some point, you're going to see, you're going to see the hope of Israel. You're going to see the leader who is to be anointed, who will bring about a new kingdom and begin this kingdom in, and it will begin in your lifetime. And she's 105. And we live in such an instant kind of society. We put everything in a microwave and expect it to be done in minutes, right? We really don't understand what it was like in cultures before when they would begin a cathedral in in Europe and they would begin it knowing that they were working on something that wouldn't be finished in their lifetime. It would go on for a hundred or plus years. We have the sense that, God, if you don't answer my prayer in the next few minutes... Or in the next couple of weeks, or in the next month, I guess you're not really who you say you are. Maybe you ever felt that way? I I have, because we all want things right away. So here's the question I want you to really consider this morning. We're going to take a few moments just to go through some what I call practical things. But here's the question: How do you keep faith alive day after day? Month to month, year after year, decade upon decade, 105 years. And here's what the answer is that I'm going to share one of them because there's a lot of them. But here's what I think godly people. Here's the answer. What I think it's you do what godly people have always done throughout all the ages. You know, they understand God's timing isn't our timing. They understand that God's on the throne. But here's how they do it. Here's how they keep that kind of hope and faith alive. You tell the story, you sing the songs, you look for the signs, and you celebrate God's victory. Those are just four simple things. There's a whole lot of other things that you could do. But I just want to share these four things with you. This is kind of what they did. They told the story. They sang songs. They looked for the signs. And in spite of what was going on, in spite of being bottom feeders for years, in this whole race, this whole kind of um, conglomeration of nations, they still proclaim God's victory. And there's four practical ways. You tell the story. For the Jews, there was one central story. 
And they repeated it again and again. Yearly, they would reenact it. At Passover, they'd sit around and the kids would say and they would ask questions. The questions would then be answered and the story would be told and they would be told sometimes some 500 years afterwards. This is what happened. This is what God did. This is the high point of the history of our whole people. God intervened. He, this God, was so great that he took a person like Moses and and he prepared this Moses. And this Moses for 40 years was out in the wilderness. God called him back in and he led these people and he, he did this thing against the Pharaoh and the Pharaoh came after him. And then God, when they stood before this 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 huge sea and they were their their backs with the pharaoh's army coming and their front with no place to go god made a way when there seemed to be no way that's the god we serve that's the story i want you to tell again and again and every year we celebrate it at passover so then eventually as they start telling that story and they would tell that story again and again they would have revived their hope they would begin to understand that this was not just some story but this actually happened in history and this historical truth was something they could bank their life on they could stand on the promise that god had said that he had acted that god through his word would come true And so then as we look at this story, we continue to see this story. For believers, it's really no different as we wait and hope. Really, what we do from Sunday to Sunday is we talk about the gospel. The gospel is basically a story. It's a story of good news. It's the good news that we celebrate once a month in communion in the same way they did Passover. We come around this communion meal and we reenact once again this incredible love of our father who intervened in history through a person who is we we have called the anointed one, the, the man who is both God and flesh, Jesus, who comes as a baby, grows to be a man, gives his life, sacrifices himself so that we could know and be in relationship with this father in heaven. And this father, because of what Jesus did, invites you into a, a personal experience with him, to know him and to walk with him. And we tell that story again and again. And parents have have done that for hundreds of years. Grandparents have told their grandchildren. Parents have told their children. Friend has told friend. Coworker has told coworker. Neighbor has told neighbor. Your testimony, your story, that is based on this story, brings hope to people. Do you know there are people who are waiting to hear this story that you have about God and his love for you and how he has intervened in this world and has also intervened in your life? And so you tell the story. And as you tell the story, hope's revived. And you go, wow, that was exciting. There really is a God. You sing the songs. This really this 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 point really hit home as I was looking at this Israel sang songs. Their hope flowed through the melodies and their faith was strengthened by the harmonies sung by those around them. As they would sing the melody and the harmonies of us around them, those around them, those harmonies that that kind of joined in would strengthen their faith upon the deliverance from Egypt. What did they do? They sang about this great exodus. If you look at Exodus chapter 15, verses one through two. We read that Moses and the Israelites sang a song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord for he's highly exalted the horse and the rider he's hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He's become my salvation. They begin to sing. Later on in Exodus 15 verse 20, we're told that Miriam, who is Aaron's sister, took a tambourine in her hand and all the women followed her with tambourines and dancing, dancing. It was the first line dance. And they're, they're dancing, it says. 
And they sang as they danced and celebrated, sing to the Lord, for he's highly exalted the horse and rider he has hurled into the sea. There is this song that bursts in their heart that brings about a hope because of what they've seen God do. And they would sing that song. And you can bet days later, weeks later, months later, years later, hundreds of years later, some of these same songs they would sing again and again because it would remind them of a hope that was birthed in their heart. And would once again re-engage their whole soul. And, and as you read through Scripture, through the Old Testament, there's other songs. David writes them. The Psalms is the songbook of this people. You read through the New Testament, you'll see there's songs that the early church sang. You know, if you've ever been set free, you can't help but sing. And when you're imprisoned, you're facing loss upon loss. Let me say it this way. You cannot help but not sing. When Paul was in a prison, he began to sing because songs sustained the weary and broken heart. Negro spirituals are our, our greatest example of this. These songs, which were written, and many of them unknown, were written as spontaneous and, and, and actually not recorded until years later. Chants or shouts, they were field songs, they were line singing with intricate harmonies of struggle and overcoming of faith and forbearance of hope and eventual victory as they would work and sweat in the fields. Songs like Kumbaya or Nobody Knows the Trouble I See. The angels are coming. We're climbing Jacob's ladder. Steal away Jesus. Sweet Cain is having light. I looked it up. There's just a score of songs. Because in difficult times, people who sustain hope sing. They need to sing. Some of these songs not only spoke about a future hope, but they were actually veiled references to a present hope of things that they had heard of other slaves being freed and being set free. So they were veiled references of like the Underground Railroad, the gospel train, which told about a hope, but also told about a potential present hope or swing low, sweet chariot. Realize they were taking of this chariot that would come someday for them. They're also speaking of the chariot, which they would call trains. Some songs gave instructions on the very freedom they, they longed for, such as wade in the water, which recommended leaving dry ground, taking water as a strategy to throw off the bloodhounds who were in pursuit. Some referred to the promised land of freedom, like Michael, row your boat ashore, which ultimately pointed to the shores of heaven. But even in the midst of their time, they had this sense of hope that possibly they could get the shores of freedom. Because the northern side of the Ohio River was that land of promise, and they called the Ohio River the Jordan. They used these songs to express personal feeling, though much more they cheered one another up because they knew that their singing had an impact on the person next to them. And they kept hope alive. Faith could be tightly gripped by someone because of someone around them singing. I just thought about that. Have you ever thought about this in our worship time? Ever thought about your engagement or lack of engagement could mean the difference of someone sitting in front of you? There might be someone who has come in and their heart is so heavy and so burdened, but as they hear your voice, they hear others sing and they hear other people engage as best you can in worship before the Lord, saying, God, my hope is in you and you alone. That your very voice, your very harmony rises up within the soul of another person and gives them joy. 
You know, sometimes we think about the worship time. You go, well, if you just get through the worship so we can get to the real thing, which is the message, which is really not what the church was ever really about. When it came to worship, it came to say this. All that we do is focused on you so that when we sing, God, we sing with our whole hearts because we give ourselves so fully to you. It's not about a message. It's not about what I can get in this moment. It's about what I can give to you. Because people who are in times of difficulty, who have gone through a millennial free fall, who have heard 600 years of silence, need to hear the story that God loves you. He is for you. He has a hope for you. He has a future for you. You may have tried to get a job again and again. You may have tried um, due to the circumstances of your life. Um, you may have loss in your life. You may have other things. And, and, and it may seem that God is silent, but God loves you. And the story is told. It was told that Jesus came. And not only did Jesus come, this hope is sustained because people around you have experienced it. And they sing it with their hearts to God. You look for signs. Christmas is the message that God's in charge. He's intervened. And there are always signs when God is at work. Signs when God is about doing, to do something. Do you know that the signs increase? You see signs if your eyes are open. If you're, you, you with, the, with the eyes of the heart and spirit begin to see, you begin to see an increase of signs as God begins to come and make himself present and known. You may be in a place in your own life right now where you have gone through some very difficult times. You've even made choices that have messed up things in your life. You may have feel in your life you're very far away from God. But then as you begin to look, you begin to see there's things that are happening. Someone shows up who, who brings some hope into your life. God kind of arranges some circumstances here that seem a little bit not really coincidental, but could it be providential? And, and things begin to happen because, you know what? God loves you. God's working right now in your life. He's doing something in your heart. He wants to draw you more fully into his presence. Signs begin to increase when God begins to move and then wants to meet you and be present with you. It happens individually. It happens corporately. Simeon and Anna had eyes to see. There were a whole lot of people in that temple who didn't see a thing. But because of their hope and their, their faith, which they clung so tightly to, they weren't going to miss that moment because the Spirit of God was in charge of their life. Is God's Holy Spirit in charge of your life? Have you surrendered everything to Him? I'm not talking about an incident or a time in your life when you may have raised your hand or you've opened your life to, to God. I'm talking about asking Jesus to be your, your life leader today and, and allowing Him to, to allow His Holy Spirit to, to come into your life and saying to Him, Holy Spirit, would you enter in and would you begin to lead and direct my life just like you did to Simeon? Every part of me. And signs begin to increase. Isaiah, the great prophet, even in years when they were still in this kind of difficult time, shared with the people before they were coming back to out of exile, he had given them a word. Isaiah 43, verse 14 and 19. Isaiah said, remember what God did in the Exodus, how he made a way through the sea. Well, I want you to quit looking back. I want you to look today. Even now, I want you to, to ask the spirit of God to give you eyes to see what he's doing in sometimes even minuscule ways in your life. 
He says in verse 18 of 43, forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way, not in the sea, but in the wilderness. And I'm making streams in the wasteland. God's doing a new thing. There were signs that accompanied the birth of Jesus. Whenever God is doing something big, he begins to show signs. And then you see stars. There's angels. There's dreams. There's visitations. There's babies jumping in mother's wombs. There's upset rulers trying to kill two-year-olds. These are all signs. Last week, I read the stories of these children in Joplin who have begun, who had experiences with angels. And why children? Because their spirits seem to be so open. And, and their openness is drawing butterflies. And I just asked again, how open are you? What signs has God given you? And then you celebrate God's victory. Paul writes these words of encouragement to many who are losing faith, wondering whether God would win in the end. This is an interesting thing. Peter, who is not even 40 years, think about it, they're not even 40 years from the, the death and resurrection of Christ. They have come to people, shared this message. People have believed this message. They have never seen Jesus, but they believe the story. They believe that God's in control. They've opened their life to God and to his control in their lives. They have allowed this Jesus, who is the king of the universe, to become the king of their hearts. They're in this place, and now they're beginning to doubt. So we read in, in, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. We are not a microwave society. No, he didn't write that. That's my With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to a place where their hearts are soft. And repentant and yielded to him. Sometimes God waits because of what he's doing in your life. You don't have the capacity to receive it right now. Sometimes he waits because of what he's doing in the life of someone else. All those are important. And so he continues, don't overlook the obvious, he says here. If you read the message, friends, with God. One day is as good as a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. He is not late. He is never late in keeping any promise to you. And so Revelation ends again with people who are wondering and it's times are really difficult now. And John, who sees this vision, writes this revelation to the church. And he ends with these words, what sounded like a great multitude, like a roaring of rushing waters, like loud peals of thunder. Catch that. Okay, it's like this. How many have ever been to like Niagara Falls? Ever had to stand underneath that one area where you hear it and how loud that is? Now combine that with the loudest peal of thunder you've ever heard. That's what he was hearing. And I'll give you my paraphrase. God wins. God wins. God wins. Or is John wrote it. Hallelujah. For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let everyone here rejoice. And let everyone give him glory while you wait for his promise. Oswald Chambers wrote, one of the greatest strains in life is the strain of waiting for God. 
Christmas is about come, thou long-expected Jesus. And we know it's true. Let's pray as the team comes to lead us in this song. Father, that applause is for you because you, God, win in our lives, in the lives of people we're praying for. God, you win in the life of this nation. It may not be in turnout as we would all want, but you are winning in every way because you will sum all this up someday and you will make that which is wrong right and you will rule completely. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.